Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 20 as we continue the passage talking about the millennium. And I want to read the whole passage again tonight just to give us some context. So it's just the first six verses, and then we'll continue to move on next week and talk about the rest of the cycle. It's hard to believe we're almost done with this book. It's crazy, wrapping up the last cycle and everything else. It's been quite the journey. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, but we'll read verses 1 through 6. And let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our living God. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our great and glorious God and King, Lord, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the finished work of Christ, which is our great hope and peace. We pray, Lord, as we study your word tonight, that you would give us hope beyond the grave, great hope in the resurrection to come, when the perishable will put on the imperishable, and the mortal will put on immortality, and when death is swallowed up in the glorious victory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. I know this is a terrible thing to think about even for a little while, but I promise it'll be worth it to just think and meditate on this for a second. But have you ever wondered what you would say to one of our missionaries If someone in their family, maybe husband, wife, or one of their little children that we pray for, would be killed for their faith and for their work overseas. Work that we support, that we pray for, we provide for. Have you ever stopped to think what you would do, what you would say to our missionaries if one of them were martyred? I know that probably sounds like an impossibility, To most of us. I mean, when we think about our own lives, we rarely, 
if ever, feel threatened for our faith. And I'm sure most of us probably assume, well, it's probably not that different for them. Over there, wherever they are, they're not experiencing things quite like we are, but they probably aren't threatened near as much as we see throughout history. But the idea that that is, that's a strange reality in history, isn't it? It's not normal in many ways. And you know what? If we wait long enough, it might be possible that that terrible day would actually come. I'm sure very few of us even pray that our missionaries would be kept from being martyred. And that's okay. We don't think about it that much. But that is a reality that we see all throughout human history. Christians constantly being killed for their faith. And still even today, all over the world, Christians are being killed for their faith. So what would you say if this got all the way back to sovereign grace? How would you encourage our brothers and sisters that we pray for? Well, if you're anything like me and think you might need some help in that, or you might be rendered speechless in a moment like that, I believe Revelation 20, these few verses from 4 to 6, can really be of great hope for us, great help in that situation. Because it's these verses that remind us that death is not the end. It's not just not the end. But when we die in Christ, the dead in Christ will reign with him for all the millennium. And they will reign vindicated, secure, holy, and in a perfectly restored relationship with their Heavenly Father. That's what this passage teaches us. That's our great hope and peace. Whether we have loved ones that we lose or other people that we know that die in faith, this is our great hope that the dead in Christ will raise and reign with Christ. And that's what we'll see in this passage as well. Now, if you were here last week... We started the first few verses in chapter 20 talking about the millennium. I just want to review for a second. I asked two questions last week about the millennium. The first was when. When does this millennium occur? We saw that in the first two verses. And essentially I argued that the millennium is symbolic. The millennium represents the heavenly reign of Jesus Christ. It really describes the whole church age. The period between his first coming and his second coming. So in other words, the millennium is right now, when Satan is bound and the gospel will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. That's the millennium. And at the end of that age, Christ will return to wipe Satan out and then judge the living and the dead. That's when the millennium occurs. Now, the second question I asked was, what does it mean by Satan being bound? Remember we talked about last week, Satan's not bound in every way, where he's not tempting or he's completely inactive. No, he's only bound specifically from deceiving the nations, it says in verse 2 and 3. Deceiving the nations in a particular way. He can't unite the nations together to destroy the church. We've seen that all the way throughout the church age because the church would have been gone a long time ago. And he also can't keep the nations in ignorance. The gospel will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. There will be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping at the throne for all of eternity. And as I said last week, this is the amillennial perspective. You've been receiving the amillennial perspective on this book the whole time if you weren't aware of that. And I want to make this clear too. You don't have to be an amillennialist or accept that label to be a member at Sovereign Grace. Not even to be an elder or deacon at Sovereign Grace. Now we believe it's right, otherwise we wouldn't teach it. 
But there are a lot of Christians, even within our own church, that disagree with us here, and that's okay. Again, this is not, it's not soteriology. It's not the gospel. It's not Christology. It's not an essential gospel doctrine. It does have massive implications, but this is the only explicit passage in the whole Bible about the millennium. And so again, I want to remind all of us that this is a good place for us to have healthy disagreements. So please ask questions. Seek for understanding. Don't let go of your convictions. But again, I asked, as Chad did with the whole baptism series, we need to guard the unity of the church. We need to fight against any divisiveness that might come here. And I know you guys will. I just want to remind us and kind of put this in context there. Well, this week, I want to add three more questions about the millennium. Three more questions in these last few verses. The first is where, where does this millennial reign occur? We'll see that in verse four. Second is who participates in the millennial reign? And the third, this one will take the longest, is what are the characteristics of this millennial reign? In other words, what will it be like? What will the millennial reign of Christ and his saints be like? That's what the last few verses will be about. So first, where? Where is this millennial reign? Now, you probably already have this answer if you were here last week. This is a heavenly reign of Christ. And there was some information last week, but there's also three clear clues in this text that shows it's a heavenly reign of Jesus and his saints. So the first clue in verse 4 is that John sees thrones. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And you might think, well, big deal. There are thrones all over Scripture, and you'd be right about that. But that's not the same as what happens in Revelation. There are thrones all over Scripture, but 47 times in the book of Revelation alone, John mentions thrones. That's way more than any other book. And the shocking part about that is all but two of those times, those thrones are located in heaven. The only two times the thrones aren't located in heaven are Satan's throne, chapter 2, and the beast's throne in chapter 16. Forty-five times listing these thrones as being in heaven, and even the chapters to follow, those heavenly thrones come down to earth in the new creation. So whenever we think of thrones in Revelation, we think of heaven. Even the first glimpse we get of heaven in the book of Revelation, we see a throne. Revelation 4, verse 1 says this. John is saying this. After this I looked, and behold, a door stood open in heaven. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. If you remember, that was the ancient of days that Jesus got the scroll from. And around him were 24 more thrones, describing the whole people of God. So John has been teaching us from the beginning with these throne pictures that when we see these thrones, we're getting a glimpse into heaven itself. Heaven is this throne room of God. And his saints. Now, if that's not convincing enough to you, you say, well, this must be the exception out of those 47 times. Okay, clue number two, then. This millennial reign also includes disembodied souls. Look at the middle of verse four. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. Notice John says, I saw souls. Not bodies. And if this was very literal, it would be really weird, right? Disembodied, you know, headless bodies. That would be really strange here. But he's saying, I saw souls there when he's seeing this vision. 
Now, he could be talking like a pilot in some ways. If you've ever been on a plane and they're saying, oh, we have 200 souls on board. That could be the case. The Bible does actually talk that way sometimes. We don't notice it because our translators just translate right over it. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, Peter's talking about the flood, and he says there were eight souls saved by water. And our translations just turn that into eight people. So the Bible does talk this way, but it's really rare. And for John to identify these as souls and then to say they were beheaded. He's talking about people that have died. He's talking about martyrs, right? Died for their faith. Where else in Revelation have we seen martyrs like this? In the heavenly places. We saw them in chapter 6. Listen to this. This is a vision of the martyrs under the altar. I saw under the altar, by the way, the altar in heaven in chapter 6. The souls, again, same word, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness, the testimony, just like it says in Revelation 20. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? You see John using the same language because it's, again, recapitulation. It's another vision of heaven. These souls are pictures of dead saints, martyrs for the faith that died because of their testimony of Jesus awaiting their own vindication, which they do get at the end of this passage. And one more clue that this is a heavenly reign. This is probably the most obvious. This is where Christ is. We see that at the end of verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You remember last week I talked about this being a brand new cycle. So this is right after Jesus' ascension. We remember every cycle essentially starts this way. Revelation 4 and 5, we see this happening as well. When Jesus, from his ascension, he ascends into heaven, he opens the scroll, and he's carrying out the Father's plan of salvation through judgment. And he does it from his heavenly throne. This is his heavenly reign, and these dead saints are joining Christ, reigning in heaven. So where? Where is this millennial reign? I believe pretty clearly this is in heaven. And this is important, too, because the first three verses... In this section alone, the first three verses are a picture of the millennium on earth with Satan bound and the church expanding to the end of the earth. But then these last few verses, four through six, is a picture of the millennium in heaven where Christ and his saints reign on high, even right now. So question number two, who participates in this millennial reign? Who participates? Well, John gives two descriptions here really of one group of people. One of them we already talked about. It's the martyrs, the middle of verse 4. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Now we need to recognize here, John is not just singling out those that have been beheaded as saying, you know what, these are, these are kind of the most glorious ways to die. Right? This is only including those that have been beheaded. The ones that were, you know, crucified or burned at the stake or fed to the lions, those aren't included in this. No, it's not what John is saying at all. John is using this common description of how many Christians died at that time. And he's saying, look, this is an example of what Christians are experiencing, and this is the group of people that encapsulates all martyrs, all those who have died in the faith. 
That's what John is saying. I looked and I saw those who were faithful to death and died because of their faith. But that's not all. It's not just the martyrs. Look at the end of verse 4. And those, so he's talking about another group here, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You see, these are those overcomers. These are those conquerors we've been hearing about throughout the entire book of Revelation. The people we've been exhorted to be. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, in other words, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so we see that promise being kept now. The saints ruling with Christ. In Revelation 12, verse 11. And they conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. See, these are the believers who were faithful to the end. They weren't martyred necessarily, but they were faithful through all the social pressure. The financial pressure from the beast that we've been talking about this whole time. They did not give in and bow the knee to Satan. They were persecuted to death, but they died maybe of natural causes. And now this is their reward. They get to rule and reign with Christ during the millennium. And they get to return with Christ when he comes back in verse 5. Look at verse 5 then. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And that's actually describing what happens at the end of the chapter. We see that at the great white throne judgment. And look what John says here. He summarizes them all. This is the first resurrection. This is the first resurrection. So you see what John is saying here. He's saying believers, this first resurrection will happen during the millennium. They'll reign from heaven with Christ. The second resurrection will happen at the end of the millennium. When there is that final judgment, when unbelievers will be raised from the dead, body and soul, and they will be judged for all of eternity. Now, if you're listening carefully, this probably creates a little bit of problem, doesn't it? Think, wait a minute, doesn't scripture talk about the resurrection as being one resurrection? Isn't it one day, one hour? That's how Jesus talks about it in John 5. Listen to what he says. Do not marvel at this. For an hour, that's a specific time, right? Not there will be one resurrection and then a thousand years in between. One hour, one day, one time is coming when all believers and non-believers who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is speaking here what really Daniel 12 says. There will be one resurrection. One ultimate resurrection but two outcomes. Well, so then how do we understand this? Because John seems to imply there's a first resurrection and a second resurrection. And as you can imagine this is where the views really diverge in many ways. The premillennialists will say no really there are actually two Two very explicit, separate resurrections. Christ will raise the believers at the beginning, premillennial. So they'll raise the believers, body and soul, in the beginning. So they reign with Christ on earth. 
And then unbelievers will be raised after that thousand-year period, whether it's actually a thousand years or longer. They'll be raised at the end of that, and then they will be raised for judgment. The big problem I have with this is it doesn't really agree explicitly with the way that Christ describes a day, a time, in Daniel 12 as well. Plus, it doesn't really square with this being a view of heaven and a view of these disembodied souls in heaven. As I said last week, I think the amillennialists are right here. This first resurrection that John speaks of is a spiritual resurrection. It's a resurrection of the soul, not of the body and the soul. That will come later. That's the ultimate resurrection. So when believers die... They're raised from the dead to be with Christ spiritually in this kind of intermediate state. And then at the end of the millennium, the unbelievers will be raised, body and soul, for judgment. The believers will be united with their body once again, and they will be in that state for all of eternity. So really, there is one ultimate, final resurrection. And this first resurrection is just a taste of that day. That's what I believe is happening here. I'm sure some will object and say, well, when does the Bible ever talk about coming to life like this spiritually, right? The first resurrection. When does the Bible speak of that? Well, Jesus himself talks about it. He talks about it in Luke chapter 20, verse 37. Let me, you don't have to turn there. Let me just summarize what's happening here. In Luke 20, Jesus is debating the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, right? That's why they were sad, you see, right? There you go. If you can't remember it, that's the way to remember it, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they were debating on whether this resurrection was really true. And so they essentially asked Jesus, well, prove the resurrection's true from the Old Testament. And so Jesus takes them to Moses, takes them to the burning bush. And he says, look at what Moses says. Moses says, God is the God of Abram. He is the God of Isaac and Jacob. Not he was the God And then Jesus says, now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The same word used even in Revelation there when they said they came to life. You see what Jesus is saying? In other words, Moses was talking about Abram and Isaac and Jacob as if they were still alive. And they weren't alive physically. They weren't walking around in resurrected bodies at that point. They were alive spiritually, resurrected. Christ even said, Abram saw my day. Right? He sought and was glad because he's been raised from the dead with God spiritually. That's the taste of the first resurrection, still awaiting the final, ultimate resurrection to come. So I hope you can see who will participate in this resurrection. It's all the saints, all the saints that were dead in Christ, whether they were martyred or not, if they persevered in faith to the end. Then as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. When we die, we go to be with Christ, reigning and ruling even now in this millennial state. Well, we've seen where the millennial reign is and who is involved. Now let's look lastly at what are the characteristics. Now I really want to spend some time here because pastorally, this is, I think, the greatest encouragement that this text offers. What are the characteristics? What will the millennial reign be like? I think you can summarize it in three words. Vindication, security, and restoration. Vindication. Look at verse 4 again. First thing John says about these saints. Then I saw thrones. 
and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now, I think, unfortunately, the ESV is pretty terrible here. It's not as much a translation as an interpretation in this passage. Because it kind of implies that the Christians here will be judges. And that's true, isn't it? Christians will judge the world. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 2 says, do you not know the saints will judge the world? Jesus says that at the beginning of Revelation. So there will be judgment where the saints sit on a throne and judge the whole world. But that is at the very end, after the millennium. The language here, very literally in, in the Greek, actually says judgment was given them. In other words, judgment was given on their behalf, in their favor. That's what we see happening here. What does that mean exactly? I believe he's actually quoting from Daniel 7. I encourage you tonight, go home and read the whole chapter. Daniel 7 is a wonderful parallel passage for everything happening in Revelation 20. It's a great description of what's going on here. Because in that passage, you remember, Daniel gets a vision of heaven. And what does he see? He sees a throne room. And who is being crowned? Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's his his coronation ceremony. He's given dominion over the entire earth. And then in Daniel 7, verse 21, listen to what it says. I kept looking until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. You see what's happened there? Judgment has been given in favor of of the saints for them. Now, why do they need that? Because these saints had already received a judgment. They received a judgment from the world that they were worthy of death. Some of them were actually killed. Some of them were hunted down. They tried to kill them, but that was a false judgment because God reverses that judgment says, no, no, no. These saints are worthy of life of resurrection. That judgment in the world is not what's going to stand. It's vindication for them. I really think what's happening here is like what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 38. God is saying here, the world saw them as unworthy. But it was really the world that is unworthy of them. It's vindicating the saints. Secondly, the second characteristic is security. Security. Look at verse 6. Blessed. And holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. And why is that a blessing? Over such things, death has no power. You see the picture there? Death has no power. Death has no power because they don't share in in this second death, this picture of death, which really we see at the end of the chapter. Look down at verse 14. Verse 14 says this. What is this second death here? Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. You see the picture here? Is that because these saints are in Christ, they've died in faith, they're raised in faith, then they will escape the second death, the spiritual death that all these unbelievers will be sent to for all of eternity. Their great hope and peace and security is that Jesus has paid it all. 
And because Christ belongs in heaven, they belong there as well. We belong there as well. I'm sure there are many here that don't feel that secure. Maybe some of you are longing for that. I want that hope, that peace, but I struggle. I stumble. I'm supposed to be overcoming sin, but a lot of times it feels like sin is overcoming me. If that's you today, then you need to know it's not how you start that matters. It's how you end. If you have breath left in your lungs, that's the grace of God. Use that breath to repent. Use the life left in your body to bow the knee to Jesus, to recognize that Jesus lived perfectly in your place, did everything that we have failed to do, and then at the cross paid the debt for our sin, paid it all in full. And when he rose from the dead, it's really true that it is finished. There's nothing left for us to pay. And so all we have to do now is trust the Lord, receive that by faith, and by the power of the Spirit, we endure to the end. We finish well. As Philippians 12 says, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. How do we do that? Recognizing it's God that works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's not necessarily how you start that matters. It's how you end. I feel like I need to stop there also and address the kids as well. Because sometimes, kids, this is a good warning for you. It's not necessarily starting well that's going to guarantee that you end well. You might have grown up in a Christian home. You might have gone to a Christian school. You go to a Christian school even now. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you know all the answers to the catechisms and you seem to know how this whole Christian thing works. Now, that is a wonderful blessing to be a part of the church like that, to hear the word, to know the word. But you need to know all those signs are pointing to Christ. And if you don't lay a hold of him by faith, none of that matters. Trust in Christ. Pray that God would help you endure to the end. And so we've seen the security of the saints. Let's look at the last verse, the end of verse 6, at the restoration, the restoration of the saints. The end of verse 6. It says this. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. Do you notice what they called the saints? Priests. Priests of God. We get that image from the Old Testament, don't we? When all of Israel has to back away from the holy God, it's the priests alone that get to draw near. Not because they were more righteous than the rest. They still have to make atonement for their own sins. But they have the privilege of communing with God on behalf of the people in a way that the other people don't. And now we find out that those that have died in Christ are all priests. That's their reward. They get to be with God for all of eternity. Enjoy communion with God. That's what we were made for, isn't it? To worship God, to enjoy him forever. And that's what we finally get in Christ. But it's not just a reward. It's also the fulfillment of an incredibly great promise. If you remember in the book of Exodus, when God freed his people from Egypt, he gave them a promise. Right before he gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, do you remember what God said? This is why I freed you from Egypt. This is what I'm doing right now when I give you the law. I will make of you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, 
And what do we see now at the end of Revelation? When we raise from the dead in Christ, that promise is fulfilled. We become priests with Christ. Holy priests reigning and ruling with Christ. And I hope we know now that we've spent so much time in Genesis, even more than that, this is the restoration of what we lost in the garden, isn't it? Humanity was always meant to serve as priests and kings in creation, in the garden, ruling and reigning on behalf of God, serving in the presence of God. But we lost that at the fall. And now we see Christ restoring it even at the end. Full restoration for those that die in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see what great hope this gives. For Christians, the great hope in death is not that there's just life after death or that there's just no judgment after death. For Christians, death means life. Death means ruling and reigning with Christ, vindicated from any slander and harm that has been done to us in this world, secure in him, knowing we will not suffer the second death in hell and fully restored to our God because he will be our God and we will be his people. We get a taste of that in the millennial reign and when Christ comes back, he'll restore it so it's that way forever. That's what I would want to say to our missionaries in the face of martyrdom. That's what I would want to say to any of you and I hope you would want to say to me that death in Christ means life peace with God and eternal reign with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word, so thankful for these wonderful truths, even these tough passages that have a lot to sort through. Lord, you have so much in there to encourage us, strengthen us in our faith. Help us, Father, to look to Christ to trust him to the end, to know that we will persevere to the end because you have graciously worked out your salvation in us. So help us trust you. Help us pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we would be faithful to the end and know this peace described in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.